Okay. Uh, I got to tell you guys, I'm, I'm kind of amped about this text. It's, it's uh, not a well-known text in the book of Acts. It's Acts chapter 14, uh, 8 through 18, verses 8 through 18, if you have a Bible and want to turn there. If you don't have a Bible, we do always have the text on the screen. Um, but before we get going, let's pray together. Lord, I pray that as we open your word right now, that your Holy Spirit would enliven our minds and hearts to be receptive to the message. That if we would see, um, if we would see places where our lives are, where we're running away from you, that we would stop and that we would turn to you. In Jesus' name, amen. When I was a kid, um, there was a, a children's book. I, I've, people my age probably remember this one, Are You My Mother? Anybody know that book? Are You My Mother? Yeah. So it, it starts, it's, um, it's a mother bird sitting on an egg in her nest, and, and she's sitting there, and the, the egg jumps. It's about to hatch. And so, so she flies off to go get a worm or some such thing uh, for, for her baby bird. And, um, and while she's gone, the egg actually hatches. And the baby bird is sitting there in the nest by himself saying, where's my mother? And he says, you know, I'm going to go find her. And so he jumps out of the nest and he starts, he sta he, some of you guys know this already, but he starts searching for his mother. And he goes up to, you know, the most ridiculous things possible. He's like, a cow, cow, are you my mother? And the cow says, I'm not even a bird. How could I be your mother? No, I'm not your mother. And he goes up to a cat and I don't even remember if the cat talks. Maybe in that world, cows can talk to birds, but cats can't for some reason. Doesn't matter. Goes up to a dog. Dog, are you my mother? And the dog's like, no, I'm a dog. I can't be your mother, and so on and so forth. He says it to a plane. He says it to a boat. He does find his mother, those of you who are, who are on tenterhooks about how this ends. The bird is okay. But, you know, this, the way that he goes around to things that can't possibly be his mother saying, are you my mother? That's basically how you and I go through life as well, except it sounds a little different. We don't say, are you my mother? We say, are you my God? Are you the thing that is going to make my life count, that's going to make me secure, that's going to give me purpose and meaning? And we say it to things that can't possibly be God. Some of you guys are like, um, engineering career. <laughs> engineering career, are you my God? Are you the thing that's going to give my life meaning? And your engineering career is like, no, I can't do that, but if you want to make good money doing things other people don't understand, I can help you there. <laughs> or, oh, okay, okay. Um, well, love of my life, known or unknown. Some of you know the love of your life. Congrats. Uh, some of you don't. And, but, but, you know, you want to make that, like all the, all the messages we get over the years, that this is the, the final experience this is the ultimate revelation of humanity in the universe is to find the love of your life. And so you're like, love of my life. Can you make me whole? Are you my God? Are you the one that makes me whole? And the love of your life says to you, sorry, I compare myself to other people on Instagram too. I'm not the one to make you whole. We say, okay, okay, money. Money, you look real good. Money, can you make me secure and protect me from the gro brokenness of the world and, and give me all the desires of my heart and make me fulfilled and happy? And money says, no, I can't do that. But you sure can waste your life thinking I can. And you say, okay, that's too shallow. Kids, 
kids, this is, a lot of movies say kids are the, the answer. And hey, children, my, my kids, can you, can you be my God? Can, can you be the thing that gives me eternal life? Because you know that whole thing of, like, even though I'm gone, I, I like, live on in your heart and mind. And your kid says, stop being weird. <laughs> I'm done. Can you wipe my bottom? <laughs> Can't be your God. We turn from thing to thing to thing to thing, saying, can you be my God. The theologian John Calvin once said that the human heart is a factory for idols. An idol is something that, that we try and use to replace God. Maybe you don't bow down to it and sing its songs. You might. But it's something that functions as a God in your life. Something to which we look that is going to give us security, that's going to give us meaning, that is going to make us whole. We ask it to do what only God can do for us. And in every case, not only can it not do that, but you actually ruin it if you ask it to. You will ruin your marriage if you ask your spouse to be your God. You will put your kids on all kinds of psychiatric couches if you ask them to be your God. If we ask these things that aren't God to be God, we destroy them. And there's one I want to focus on a little bit more today because we're going to see from the text, and this is a tricky one. One of the trickiest God replacements is when we mistake a Christian leader for Christ. And we're like, Christian leader! Your life seems so together spiritually and everything like that, and if I follow you... I can become like you, and then everything works. And the good Christian leaders say, get out of here and go to Jesus. And the bad ones say, buy my book and like me on Instagram, and it can happen for you too. They can become a God replacement just as much as all these other things. Now, in, in today's text, we are going to see people who, who not only have, you know, God replacements in the uh, material object category, but actually mistake Christian leaders for God and want them to be God replacements as well. Look with me at Acts chapter 14, verse 8. In Lystra, there sat a man who was lame. He had been that way from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul as he was speaking. Paul looked directly at him, saw that he had faith to be healed, and called out, Stand up on your feet. At that, the man jumped up and began to walk. Now, Lystra, we probably don't know where this is. Uh, none of us, why would we know where it is? That's ridiculous. Um, so, up to this point on the missionary journey, Paul and Barnabas, they had gone to mainly Gentile towns that had synagogues. All you needed for a synagogue was ten Jewish men and you could have a synagogue. Lystra is the first place they go to that didn't have one, meaning there was no real Jewish population at all. This is an entirely Gentile pagan town. Not only that, this is not Athens, this is not Corinth, this is not a major city, this is a smaller, out-of-the-way, one-stop-like kind of town. So the, these are, you know, farming people, these are not, like, educated folks. And so... 
Uh, that, that, that's important to know because you're going to see what happens next. Verse 11. Got uh, the PA system fighting back against, I don't know, anyway. Uh, verse 11, when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they shouted in the Lyconian language, the gods have come down to us in human form. Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul they called Hermes because he was the chief speaker. A little background here is we actually know that this area had a legend that previously Zeus and Hermes had visited this area. I, I, we're told about it in the book The Metamorphoses by the poet Ovid. And so this, is, this area is central Turkey, and, um, and so this was like the, the, the previous time Zeus and Hermes had supposedly come, they weren't received by anybody and, and like they flooded the place. Um, and so these folks were eager not to make the same mistake twice. They were on the lookout. They're like, a miracle, Zeus and Hermes again. Let's not blow it this time, folks, team up. And so look at what they do. Verse 13, the priest of Zeus, whose temple was just outside the city, brought bulls and wreaths to the city gates because he and the crowd wanted to offer sacrifices to them. So picture this. Paul isn't preaching in a synagogue. He's in the open marketplace, the Agora. And, um, and you know, he heals the guy. And then a whole crowd conversation, a hubbub in Lycaonian breaks out. Now, Paul and Barnabas, they knew Greek, they knew Hebrew, they knew Aramaic, they knew Latin. They did not know this local dialect. So they're confused. What's going on? But the crowd's talking excitedly, and then they finally get it when they see someone who's dressed as a priest leading an ox with a garland. That was a symbol of this, is a, this, this animal's about to be sacrificed, and he finally understood, oh, they want to sacrifice to us. Look at how uh, Paul and Barnabas respond here in verses 14 and 15. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of this, they tore their clothes and rushed into the crowd shouting. Now, when a Jewish man tears his robes, it is because he has heard blasphemy. Okay? He says, friends, why are you doing this? We too are only human like you. We are bringing you good news, telling you what to turn from these worthless things to the living God. Now, this word that's getting translated worthless, you could also take it as useless. And what useless things is he saying to turn from? Well, for starters, himself. And also, we're going to see that he means that the very things that they worship through Zeus and through Hermes are dead, useless God replacements. Now, he refers specifically to rain and crops and that sort of thing. And rain and crops are great if you want to eat. They're not so good as a God, right? That, that's, that's the idea. It's like a car is a wonderful thing for driving down the road. If you want to cross the ocean, completely useless. That's the sense that he means worthless, is that it can't be used for that. These things that you're asking to function as gods are worthless for that purpose. He's telling, and 
And this is a, a big part of the book of Acts is the, 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 the theology of the book of Acts is often found in these sermons. And so this one, it's calling us to turn from useless God replacements to the living God. Turn from useless God replacements to the living God. Why? How is he going to persuade them to do this? Okay, here's, here's the outline for those people who like these sorts of things. It's because the living God made everything, the living God speaks, and the living God wants us to know his love. He contrasts the worthless gods that they're replacing the true God with and says that the living God made everything. He speaks and wants us to know his love. So first of all, uh, we see that, that the living God made everything. Look with me again at verse 15. He says, friends, why are you doing this? We too are only human like you. We are bringing you good news telling you to turn from these worthless things to the living God. The first thing he tells them about the living God, who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. You see, to the ancient pagan mind, there was not one creator God. There was a bunch of gods that had dominion over their, uh, their little area, whether that was Poseidon over the sea or Zeus, and this is why they worship Zeus. These were not sea folk. These were agrarian people. Zeus sent the rain, so he was a big deal in that culture. And he's saying, these are not gods. These are all gifts from the one true God. L look with me at verses 16 and 17, because you you'll see. In the past, he let all nations go their own way, yet he has not left himself without testimony. He has shown kindness by giving you rain from heaven and crops in their seasons. He provides you with plenty of food and fills your hearts with joy. So he's telling them, what you're worshiping as a God isn't a God, it's a gift from God. That the, that the living God made everything, including these good gifts. This is a classic this is a classic mistake of mistaking the gift and the giver. Best gift I ever got. I'll tell you about it. First, you have to know that while on tour with my old band, I became obsessed with a Norwegian painter. This happens to me sometimes. I was, uh, I was in Oslo on a day off, and I was just walking around the museum, and there was this one room that had a bunch of paintings that I found amazingly stunning. And I started like looking at the little plaque next to each one, and they were all by the same person, a guy named Hoftan Agudius. I pronounced that correctly. And he was a Norwegian painter, and I looked at the, the dates. It said his life was 1877 to 1899, dead at 22. And I, this piqued my interest. What happened to this guy? How did he make such amazing paintings when he was so runty? He was like this little, you know, me at 22 could not do that. I can't do it now. And so I went down to the museum gift shop, and I asked the person, hey, do you have any books on Hafdan Agudius? And they said, who? I said, Hafdan Agudius. He's hanging in your gallery here. And they said, I've never heard of him. But seriously, in like the National Gallery of Norway, they hadn't heard of this dude. They sent me down the street to a bookstore that had like an art department where a university student who majors in art worked. And, and this person told me, I've heard of him. There is a book written on him. 
but it's in Norwegian and it's out of print. So even if I were to learn Norwegian for the purpose of reading this book, I couldn't get it. And so I became obsessed with Hoftan Agudius. And I, I went back to, to, to the States and Sherrod and I had been dating for one year at the time. And, and I didn't really know how to use the internet at this point because it was 2003 and not everything. You couldn't find anything on this dude even on the internet. Fast forward, our one year, one year dating anniversary came. And I was in Sharon's kitchen, and she came in with a big box, said, here's your present. And I opened it, and I unrolled it, and in it was a canvas with oil reproduction of this painting by Haftan Agudius. It's there. Click it up for me. It was my favorite one, too. It's called Girls Dancing. You could see why. Um, and Sharon, even though there was nothing to be found in them, found some way to get me not just to print, but an oil on canvas reproduction of my favorite painting by the painter I was obsessed with. This is like one of the most over the top gifts I could possibly imagine. And, you know, like I'm looking at this thing, and naturally I look at the giver, and I'm astounded at what this gift says about the giver. You see what I'm saying? And the wrong response would have been to say, great painting, you know, <laughs> and not remember who gave it to me and what that gift signifies. In the same way, when we mistake the gift for the giver, we're turning, we're, we're taking something that's a good gift from God and asking it to be God. We need to turn from our useless God replacements to the living God because God made everything. So when we are enjoying our family, when we're grateful for our family, if you have one, when you're out there, some of you guys like to climb rocks and do all kinds of crazy stuff in the outdoors. That's a good gift from God. The, the way that we turn in that situation from a useless idol, from a useless God replacement to the living God is to, in that moment, remember the giver of the gift. But this isn't the only reason to turn from useless idols to the living God. Um, back in 1980, there was a, a movie made of Popeye the Sailor Man. Anybody ever see this? Robert Altman did it. It's pretty good. Robin Williams is Popeye the Sailor Man. Yeah, Shelby knows it. Oh, guys, yay, we know it. Um, it's a weird movie, but it's very cool. And so in it, Popeye the Sailor Man is in search of his long-lost father, who he's never met. And he goes to this island where the whole story happens, and, and he's searching for who he calls Pappy. Now, the only thing of his father he had was a framed picture and there was not even a picture in it. It just said in the frame, Pappy. And he was looking at it saying, I've got to find my Pappy. Right? And so, so he was in search. He was longing for relationship with someone who he had never met, who had never spoken, this unknown and silent father. That's kind of how we sometimes understand God as well. Are we searching for an unknown and silent God? 
Because one thing I see is that human beings long to hear the voice of God. How many times have you heard someone say, I think the universe is telling me, right? We're paying attention to like the happenings of the world and, and we want to hear the voice of God. That's what I think is behind, you know, like horoscopes and tarot cards and all these things. People are trying to hear from something greater, trying to hear from something beyond themselves. We want to hear from God. Even us skeptical, hard-headed types. You know what the last line of Stephen Hawking's Brief History of Time says? He says, to know the reason for our existence would be our ultimate triumph because then we would know the mind of God. Each and every one of us want to hear from God. But we seem to inhabit a world where God is silent and unknowable. But the, the second reason Paul gives us for turning from these worthless God replacements to the living God is that the living God speaks. The living God speaks. Here's where we see it. First of all, in verse 14, we see, but when the apostles, you know what an apostle means? You know what the word apostolos means? It means one who has been sent. Who has sent these messengers? The answer is God has sent them. And in verse 15, he tells them, we're only human. We're bringing you good news. Who's he bringing it from? He's bringing a message from God. And, and not only that, we also see that God not only speaks through messengers, but he speaks through creation. Verse 16, Paul says, In the past he let all nations go their own way, yet he has not left himself without testimony. That is, someone bearing witness, without someone speaking about God. And what does he say it is? It's the rains, it's the crops. And you, you notice that, that the way Paul's explaining who God is reflects the audience, doesn't it? The, he's not referring to poets and literature and things that the lettered people of Athens would know. He's not referring to the Old Testament like when we see him preach to Jews. He's preaching to these farmers. And the, way, the, the contact point they have with God, the way that God has spoken to them, is through what's right around them, the rains, the crops, the land. So the living God speaks. We are not in search of a silent, unknown, unknowable God, but that he has given us messengers, and also he speaks through creation. As Psalm 19 tells us that, 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 that the heavens declare the glory of God, that when we look around at all that God has made, it tells us something true about God. Now, um, when, for us, we don't have like the physical messengers of God coming to us, but we have been left God's word written by his messengers, right? And, and this, is, this, is, this is sobering because part of, part of the function of the church is to be caretakers of God's message to humanity, the scriptures. Because, as I said earlier, there are some people who claim to be messengers of God that are perfectly willing for people to turn to them instead of the one true God, instead of the living God. And so we need discernment here. Because not only 
are many of us leaders, and let me tell you, this is, this is not just, this is not just the, the sort of sleazy internet pastor who's wearing Yeezys and, and that sort of thing, but this, this is a tendency inside each one of us. I had a, I had a seminary professor tell me, or tell us, I, wasn't, I was in class, it wasn't just me. He said, people will respect you far too much if you do your job at all well. There is such a temptation to lead people when we're supposed to be God's messengers. If you're discipling someone one-on-one, -on -one, if you're a leader in the church, that, that you'll lead people to yourself instead of pointing them to the living God. We need to take great care here because if, if we have people turning to us, in place of God, then we're just one more God replacement. Also, God has told us about himself through creation. There's some of you who work in the sciences, and it, it's just, it's a beautiful thing. It's an appropriate thing for someone who loves Jesus to take care and uh, to take an interest in creation. So many of you are just in love with nature, and you'll, you'll put 50 pounds on your back and hike miles and miles so you can sleep on a tree root and be bitten by bugs so that you can connect more deeply with a waterfall or something like that. And that is an appropriate thing. There's a reason. There's a reason that so many cultures throughout history have deified creation, you know, wanted to worship the sun or worship a mountain or something like that. It's because the voice of God is in those things. They're not God but God speaks through them, right? So we need to turn from useless God replacements to the living God, not only, not only because God made everything, but because God speaks to us. And what is the message that he speaks? It's that the living God wants us to know he loves us. When we see in verse 16, we see that he pursues all people. When Paul says, in the past, he let all nations go their own way. Now, what's being implied there is it's not the past anymore. That the very fact that these messengers from God had arrived at this little pagan mountain town is letting them know that God is calling them to himself. He's pursuing them. But also, that God cares, that the very food they enjoy, the crops that they grow, is all a message from God to them, telling them that he cares and wants them to know joy. Now, follow my reasoning here. I also think that Paul is implying that God wants them to have eternal life in Christ here. Look with me at verse 18. He says, it says, even with these words, they had difficulty keeping the crowd from sacrificing to them. All right? So remember, Paul is somewhat panicking. He tears his robe and he runs out, don't sacrifice to me. Let me tell you about the one true God. Now, these are not people who were familiar with the concept that there was one true God. So the first sermon is going to be, hey, all these things you worship to God as gods aren't gods. There's one true God who made everything, who loves you, who pursues you. I believe there was going to be a follow-up sermon the next day, except some other people show up and persuade the, the, this town to stone Paul, which prevents you from preaching a second sermon. 
<laughs> right? But, but the, 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 the intent of Paul is that he, that, that he wants them to hear the gospel of Jesus, but he has to start where they are. These people didn't know, they didn't know anything about the Messiah. They don't know about sin. They don't know about there being one God. But when the living God speaks, what he says is he wants us to know that he loves us. This is really key. You know, I, I asked my son if I could share this, so it's okay. But I'll tell you, it's hard to be my son. Here's why. I go a little overboard with telling him I love him. And this, this is intentional. This is a plan. Tell me if this, this is going to work. You see, I don't want him to get older. Because, like, with, with my, I have four girls, and, and with them, I'm like, I love you, honey. And they're like, I love you, Dad. And they run at me and hug me, right? But as, as soon as my son started getting a little older, I'd be like, I love you, son. And he's like, love you, love. You know, he's kind of doing that thing. I'm like, uh-uh. No, not on my watch, my friend. My son is not going to reach his 20s and wonder if his dad loved him. So I do ridiculous things. I shout it from the other side uh, of the house. I run down the hall. I tackle him. I bring him down. I'm like, I love you, boy. Because when he asks himself the question when he's 25, did my dad love me? He's, he's going to remember me tackling him to the ground and shouting, I love you. There's going to be no doubt in his mind. He also might think I'm psychotic, but I'll take that. You know, better I'm psychotic and love him than he's wondering if I don't love him. I, it, is, it is coming from deep in my heart as a, one of the most important things I want my son to understand is my great love for him. And this is the major theme of the entire Bible. The single story the Bible tells does not speak of a cold, distant God who sits there with his arms crossed waiting for the worthy to find him. Instead, it's of us rebelling and running away and this God who loves us chasing after us, going to the greatest possible lengths himself, becoming a man in the person of Jesus, Suffering humiliation, suffering poverty, going to a cross to restore relationship with us. That is the headline of the Bible. That God wants us to know that he loves us. We need to turn away from these useless God replacements. They do not love us like this. We pour our devotion, we pour our worship, we pour our effort into these things that do not love us back the way that only God can. We need to turn from useless God replacements to the living God because the living God made everything. He speaks to us and wants us to know his love. There was once a writer named Francis Thompson. Um, he was a poet and a writer. Now, he was a... Uh, training to be a doctor at the behest of his father, but he, while he was in medical school, developed a really bad, like, anxiety condition for which he was prescribed opium. This was a while ago. And in short order, he became heavily addicted 
to the point where he, he really couldn't keep his life together. And he ended up uh, sleeping, he's from London, he was sleeping right next to the River Thames under the bridge, living there. And he would fish newspapers out of the trash and he would write in uh, opinion pieces and poems and essays with no return address, just send them in. And they're like, who is this guy? But it was brilliant. For years, he lived under the bridge. He knew in some way that God loved him, but he was turning away from God. Now, eventually, he got off the streets and he got sober and he returned to walking with Jesus, but he wrote his most famous poem, and I'm allowed poetry once per quarter, I'm using it today. He wrote his most famous poem, The Hound of Heaven, in which he depicts God as a hunting hound chasing after him as a, as a, as a, a, a rabbit. It says, I fled him down the nights and down the days. I fled him down the arches of the years. I fled him down the labyrinth ways of my own mind and in the midst of tears. I hid from him and under running laughter, upvisted hopes I sped and shot precipitated down titanic glooms of chasmed fears from those strong feet that followed, followed after. Now of that long pursuit comes on at hand the brute. That voice is round me like a bursting sea. Lo, all things fly from thee, for you fly from me. Strange, piteous, futile thing. Where should any set thee love apart, seeing none but I make much of naught? All which I took from you, I did but take, not for your harm, but that you might seek it in my arms. All which your child's mistake fancies is lost, I have stored for you at home. Rise clasp my hand and come. When we are worshiping, are asking a replacement God to be God for us, it is going to fail. It is not going to speak to us. It is not going to love us. It is not the giver of the gift, but a gift. We need to turn from useless God replacements to the living God. Please pray with me. Lord, we confess that we often, I myself, am constantly substituting something for you. That I look for significance, for security, for purpose, for wholeness in so many things. Some of them too trivial to even take seriously. We thank you that you are patient with us and that you forgive us. And I pray that, that your spirit will work in us to turn us away from these God replacements to living God. In Jesus' name, amen. We come now to the table. When we hear a call, when we hear a message telling us to come to Jesus. One way that we physically do that is we stand up and we come to this table. This table is not for the perfect. In fact, if you consider yourself to be morally perfect, please do not come. You're not ready for it. 
This table is for all of us who have recognized that we are guilty before God, but that Jesus has paid the price of our guilt, that we are worshipers of many gods, and Jesus is calling us back and sacrificed himself so that we can know and be in relationship with the one true God. Um, please take a moment of silence as we prepare to receive this.